We are in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to start, we're going to do a little bit of overlap from last time, and we're going to pick it up from verse 4. Genesis chapter 15, verse 4. Then the word, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of of the Chaldeans to bring you this land, to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought the, all these to him and he cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep, was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, the ter- terror and a great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nations whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you will go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates the Kenite, the Kenazite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. So God promised in verse, in verse 4, He said that a child is going to come forth from your very body, that you're going to have an heir. <clears throat> so God had made a promise about a person that would be the heir before that person was even born, And before that person was even conceived, God made a choice. God makes a choice long before there's even a conception. God made the choice. And then it says that that, uh, uh, God promised to give the land to the descendants of that particular seed. So there is that particular seed and he's going to give he's going to give the land to a particular descendant he, uh, to that particular descendant to that particular seed he's going to give this particular land so God makes a promise concerning somebody who's not even yet born saying I've chosen this one God makes a choice even before the birth even before the conception God makes the choice now he makes the choice of the land and he says to Abram Abram says how do I know I'm going to get this land Because Abram is concerned. What if my seed doesn't keep your word? What if my seed doesn't obey? Will we really still get that land? What if my seed doesn't obey? Will we get that land? 
That was his deep concern. So God says, let me take care of that. He says, you get and you split these animals. Now, this is a particular type. This is called a blood covenant. So what's being done here is a blood covenant is being made. God is instituting a blood covenant. This is different than the handshake covenants that we see in Ezra and Ezekiel. This is different than the the exchange of a sandal covenant, which we see in Ruth chapter 4. This is different than the exchanging of salt. This is a blood covenant. In a blood covenant, the two parties split an animal in half and they walk between the animals. And in a blood covenant, each party is bound to keep this for the rest of their lives. It is throughout the lives of those making the covenant. And if they disobey this covenant, if there's a disobey, they have to sacrifice their lives if they disobey the covenant. This is the strongest covenant that could be made. Generally, both parties, both parties will walk through between the, that, that, that sacrificed animal to make the covenant. But what happens here is only God walks among this. Only God does this. This is a covenant that is one-sided. God makes the promise that I will keep this covenant. It's not dependent upon you, Abram. It's dependent upon me and my life. As I live, this covenant will be kept. This land is going to be for your seed and the descendants from that seed. The seed was Isaac. Abram had several other sons. Not, not, not just Ishmael. He ended up having several other sons as well. This was just for that seed. And it says here, descendants. It actually, the word translated is seed. The seed is Isaac. And through the descendants of Isaac, then Jacob. And through the descendants of the, the 12 sons of Jacob, that seed came forth. And he says, I promise to you that land, that particular land. That's it. This promise is a covenant kept by God. So God has chosen a life before it was even born and said, I'm going to institute this covenant through this person. And then he chose a particular land and he said, through all these descendants, you're going to get the land. So God chose a person and a group of people and a land. And he made a promise based on his own life. He says, as I live, I am bound to this. You don't have to walk through this. This is not dependent upon you, Abram. It's not dependent upon the faithfulness of your descendant. I'm going to keep this promise. It's not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon me. It's all dependent upon God. God chooses a life before it's even conceived. God chooses a people, a group of people, before they've even come forth. And He's chosen a particular land for them. That's what this covenant came forth as. And then he said in verse 16, he, he, well, he, he, he talks about the, the time he warns them, though. He says, even though I'm making this promise, your descendants, in verse 13, are going to be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years in a strange land. This is speaking of the oppression that's going to take place in the land of Egypt. Well, actually, that, that particular oppression in the land of Egypt was, was only for 215 years. Where did the 400 years come from? That is from the time of this covenant all the way on through until the Exodus. And sometimes you see 400 years, sometimes you see 430 years. The 430 years is from the time of the covenant to the time of the Exodus. The 400, the, 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 that's 430 years. 
before hundred years is from the weaning of Isaac, the weaning of the seed until the time of the Exodus. The actual time in Egypt is 215 years. And, and uh, uh, so, so you can understand the years here. And he talks about, he talks about they will come out in the fourth generation after the 400 years. In fact, in the scriptures, you can see generations spoken of as 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, or 100 years in different contexts. But the scripture uses generation just as we use generation. It means contemporaries. It's not talking about a particular number of years. It's talking about contemporaries. And then he says, then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. This is a judicial return. He is giving another 400 years for the Amorites to repent. The Amorites went so far as to offer up their own children. They would kill their own children. Imagine that. They would kill their own children. The Amorites would kill their own children. Imagine that. And God said, I'm going to give them a certain amount of time to repent. And after that time is up, in 400 years, I'm coming and there's going to be, the Amorites are going to be wiped out. The Canaanites composed of the Amorite in that, pro, in that land. This is, was a judicial return when Joshua comes in the land. And that's the only time you see this mass, mass execution of people. Israel did not have a mass execution of people throughout their history. No way. It was only this particular part of the land. And this was a ju- judicial judgment upon the Amorite. And God gave them 400 years, a 400 year warning to repent. Because they were offering up their own children. There is a penalty for killing our children. There's a penalty for that. There's a judgment from God for that. He says, I'm giving you this time. Then he says, he executes this covenant. So God chooses a people and a land. This fits very much into what we see in the New Testament, where it speaks of the total total depravity of man. We are totally depraved. There is no good in us. If there's anything good in you, that's not of you. That's totally from God. We are sinners inherited from Adam and it's testified to our minds every day. If you think you're pretty good, think of your thoughts. Project your thoughts onto a screen for everybody to see. Go ahead for one day and they'll see how wicked and evil you really are. Project your thoughts on a screen. And there's total depravity, but there is unconditional election. Meaning God has chosen. The, new, the, the, the King James calls it election. The newer versions a lot of times use the word chosen. You are chosen, you are chosen. God chose you. You think, I chose God. You didn't choose God. God chose you. God chose you. Before Isaac was even conceived, God chose him. Before we were even conceived, God chose us. There's this unconditional election. There's this definite atonement where Jesus has given his life for us. There's this irresistible grace. When God comes upon our life, we accept Him. You say, well, it's because of my faith. Well, we'll look at that. And then there's this preserving grace where God preserves the believer. God will preserve the believer. So let's look at uh, uh, several verses here. So for unconditional election, let's look at John. The book of John, chapter chapter uh, uh, 15, verse 16. John chapter 15, verse 16 says... You did not choose me, but I chose you. 
Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You think you're pretty good and you chose God? Jesus said, I chose you. I chose you. Jesus is the one who chooses the believer. Jesus chooses us. Look at, look at uh, uh, another passage in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. So he says, consider your, your calling. In other words, God called us. Then he says in, in, in the next verse, in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that He might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. None of us can boast before God. God has chosen us. God has chosen the weak things of the world. If you're here as a believer, here is your testimony. God has chosen you because you are the weak ones. God has chosen the weak ones of the world. God has chosen the ones that are despised. God has chosen the, 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 uh, the, the weak things of the world to shame the, the strong. God has chosen the base things and the despised. Because you have been despised, God chose you. It's not because of any great work that you did. It's just the opposite. So if you feel yourself unworthy, that's exactly how you should feel. You've been chosen because you're unworthy. But you see, God chose, God chose, God chose. God made the selection. God did that. Let's, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. Now, grace means an undeserved gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. See, so he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And you say, well, I had faith. That's why I was saved. He says, and that not of yourselves. The faith is not from yourself. You look at the Young's literal translation, it says specifically, the faith is the thing that's not of yourself. You think that, hey, I had faith, therefore I got saved. No, God gave you the faith. God is the one who has the faith who gives the faith. That's not something inherent within us. If it were up to us, we never, ever would have accepted Him. If it be up to our own wickedness, we never would have shown any interest in Him. God has chosen you. The very faith that you have, He's given you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. The faith is not of you. God has given that to you. It is a gift of God. Nobody can boast about this thing. God has given this to you. If you think yourself so good that you have had this faith and you did it yourself, it's like I, I always had my head under the hood of my car, fixing it, because I always had an old car. I was always fixing it, and, and the first six or seven years of my marriage, I had this car that would break down all the time. Shireen would... would see me walking home and she'd say, your car broke down again. I said, yeah. And, and I knew how to fix cars. It just was such an old piece of junk that it broke down all the time. And I'd, I'd spent four years working in a gas station through, through high school. So I learned how to fix cars. So I was always fixing cars. And my little daughter, my, my, my oldest daughter, she was a little girl and I'd give her a little screwdriver. So I'm working on the car and I'd give her a little screwdriver and she, just to poke around. And then she'd come in, I'd fix daddy's car. 
And, and so she felt she fixed daddy's car. You felt as if you, you, you did this. God gave you the faith. God gave it to you. You're proud of yourself. God gave it to you. Whatever faith you had, God gave it to you. That's what this says. Let's look at, at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And we're going to start, we're going to start reading from, from verse 9. Romans chapter 9, reading from verse 9. For, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So he is speaking of Isaac who's going to be born. God made the choice. Now he says not only this, but there was Rebecca. He's giving us an even firmer example. There was Rebecca. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had done, not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Go figure. There are twins. Before they did anything, God chose one. You say, I, I don't like the sound of that. Tough. It's not my word. I'm just parroting what God has written. You got a problem, you take it up with Him. But He wrote what you do not like. Because our taste is corrupt. Alright? He is right, we are wrong. I am just reading what it says. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? In verse 14, you think God's unjust. God, God, there's injustice here. No. He says there's no injustice with God. May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. You think you can will yourself into salvation? He says it doesn't depend on the man who wills. It doesn't depend on the man who runs. Go ahead. Do some great works and try to gain your salvation. Not going to work. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For this, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he, he hardens whom he desires. So God is able to do this. God is able to do this. Once we are in the kingdom of God, there is preserving grace. Just like God made the covenant with Abram. God made a covenant. He says, you don't have to walk between these pieces because you're not going to keep this thing. I'll walk between the pieces. Just me. The whole thing is based on me, God says. God does this in the life of the believer. If you think that your close walk is what keeps you saved, you're in big trouble. It's not that. What you've got is a little screwdriver poking at a car, thinking you're fixing the car. No, it is God who does this. There's preserving grace. Look at in, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You were sealed for the day of redemption. This sealing is not because of you. You have already been sealed. Therefore, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Yes, we do wrong all the time. Yes, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. But we are sealed. God has put this seal on us. Look in, in, in uh, John chapter 3, verse 15. John chapter 3, verse 15. So that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, 
that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish. Remember I told you, when God says, shall or will, I shall or I will, or it shall happen, it will happen. It has to happen. It can't help but happen. It has to happen. He says, whoever believes in Him shall not perish. That is glorious. It's not up to me. God's the one who keeps this covenant. God's the one who walks between these animals. God is the one. This is the preserving grace. It is there. The grace of God is there. Once you be in Christ, you think, well, I'm not a Christian anymore. Too bad. If you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you believed on His resurrection from the dead, you are in. You are in. You say, well, it it doesn't depend on what I do. It doesn't depend on what you do, good or bad, you are in at that point. What depends on that is the human responsibility and what you will lose both in this life and in the future to come. But as far as salvation, that is absolutely sealed. We know from the testimony of Scripture that that the descendants of Abram, who became the descendants of Abraham, the... The the nation of Israel many, many times rebelled against the Lord. Many times rebelled against Him. But they were never outcast. You have the advantage of living in the generation that you do. There's many people, even in this church, that were born at a time when the nation of Israel didn't exist in that place. That came about in 1948. In 1948, Israel came back to that land just overnight by one vote in the United Nations. Just a miracle. After 2,000 years, from 70 AD to 1948, they were out of that land. And God brought them back. And you're like, huh? Where'd they come from? If you had asked somebody in, in 1940 or in 1930, are the Jews coming back to that land? They'd be like, you got to be kidding. I mean, you know, that's just Bible stuff. They are there. They are back. Because why? God kept the covenant. God kept the covenant. But their rebellion caused great problems in their lives. Great problems in their lives and in their future. It caused them great problems. But God is the one who does it. Because He says it shall happen. Look in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Verse 39, John chapter 6, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Do you see this? I am so thankful that this whole thing depends on Jesus and not on me. God willed it, Jesus sealed it, and that's it. That is it. Well, what then depends on us? What then depends on us? Well, there is human responsibility in all of this. Look in in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us if we endure with Him. If we endure, the the King James says, if we suffer with Him, we will also reign with Him. How do you reign with Jesus as a believer? How do you live with Jesus eternally, reigning with Him as a believer? 
You suffer with Him. You become a part of His life. You endure with Him. But if you deny Him, He will deny you. You see, there, there's a loss of salvation, right? No. He will deny you. But you don't lose your salvation. And you say, well, this doesn't quite make sense. Well, let's, let's look a little bit further. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Mark eight thirty-eight. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. When Jesus returns, he is going to be introducing believers to his Father. Then he's going to come to certain believers that have not suffered with him, that have not followed him. And he's going to say, oh, Father, you don't want to meet this one. He's going to move them aside. He says, I'll be ashamed of him. This, Jesus will be ashamed of that one when he comes in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. That's the first thing that will be lost if we do not walk closely with him. The believing in Christ seals it, just like the rebellion did not keep them out of that land. They were eternally going to be in that land. That was sealed. Because God sealed it. This seals it, but he'd be ashamed. You say, how could a, a parent be ashamed of a kid? Oh, I'll tell you, I'm ashamed of my kids sometimes. I really am. I mean, they get an attitude. I'm like, just go upstairs. I don't want these people to see you. Just go upstairs. I don't know who that person is. I mean, parents get ashamed of their kids sometimes because, because of their attitudes. And you don't want people to know that that's your child. You know, my, 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 I have, might have a certain kid going through an attitude and they're in a certain city and I have a very good friend in that city. I, I don't say, hey, get together with my, my son. No, no, I say, I just don't tell him that my son's in that city because I'm not really excited about the way my son is walking or his attitude or something. Jesus, there will be a time that if we do not walk with him, he won't be, won't, won't, won't be excited about us. Let's look at this more explicitly, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is talked about far more explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Look at that. A foundation was laid in Christ. According to the grace of God given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. But now you've got to build upon that foundation of Christ. He says, but each man must be careful how he builds upon it. So who's the builder now? Who's the builder on the foundation? Not God, but man. Who's the builder upon that foundation? It says, but each man must be careful how he builds upon it. The builder is man. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is our foundation. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. 
If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You see, the foundation remains. The man will be saved, yet so as through fire. Each man's work will be tested. This is why I implore you, take the word of God and make this a part of your life. When you receive the Lord, take that word of God and make it a part of your life. Walk in it. Walk in it truly. Follow in obedience. God has called us, for example, to be baptized. Walk in obedience in baptism. You're embarrassed, be embarrassed and get baptized. There's a lot of embarrassment in walking with the Lord. A lot of times you've got to take a stand when the world is not standing with you, when your friends are not standing with you. This is part of the steps of walking with Him. Then he says, he says, these works, they could be gold, silver, and precious stones, or you could build upon the Christian life with wood, hay, and straw. And it's going to be tested by fire. The things that come at us in life will test the work, as the, will test the structure that we have built upon this foundation. The foundation is the receipt of Christ. You receive the Lord. That's the foundation there. That will be built upon. How will you build upon it? You want to build upon it with sinful things? When the fire comes, there's going to be a lot of burning. And you will be saved as though through fire. And it says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. In verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Heavenly reward is totally dependent on how we build upon the foundation of Christ. Heavenly reward is totally dependent on how we build upon the foundation of Christ. Getting into heaven, that's purely on Him. How we build upon this foundation, by the grace of God, how we build upon this foundation. It is very important. There is human responsibility. How are we going to build on this foundation? What will you do with this foundation? This is why I tell people, learn how to serve. Learn how to serve in the church. Learn how to pick up chairs and serve. Learn how to clean. Learn how to, how to do whatever needs to be done. Attend prayer meetings. Do these types of things. You are building up a heavenly reward and you are building up a foundation that affects not just heaven. The Bible says that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the entire earth to strongly support those whose heart is completely His. God blesses those who serve Him. You walk in service, you will find a much better spouse than if you don't walk in service. As you serve, some young man or some young woman is going to see you serving and think, wow, that'd make a great spouse. Because a selfless spouse is much better than a selfish spouse. You will bring great blessing into your life by learning how to serve. You say, well, I'm, I'm too busy for that. Okay, then you're way too busy than you ought to be. You need to learn to serve. You really need to learn to serve and trust God with things. You need to learn how to serve. You be active. That doesn't mean you just show up for church. That's not serving. That means you become active in some particular role. You're in a campus group. You get there early. You set up the chairs. You, you do photocopying for the brochures or whatever needs to be done. You say, I need to serve. I need to get engaged. You show up for prayer meetings. This is an act of service. This is how we build upon that foundation. It starts with a foundation. If you do not know the Lord, you have to know the Lord first. You can't build upon something without a foundation. 
You have to first know the Lord. If you've never said, Lord, forgive me for my sins, come into my life, then you need to do that first. You can receive the Lord this very day. I would be happy to tell you about the Lord. In fact, I get frustrated when I go a day without being able to tell somebody about the Lord. So do me a favor and let me tell you about the Lord. I'd be glad to do it. And I'll lead you right into that place where you've established that foundation. Lead you right to the feet of my Jesus whom I love. There's nothing greater than I could do for you. And then you build upon that through acts of service. If all you do is your own job and take care of your own family and just feed your own family, there is nothing there. You've built nothing. It's acts of service that go way beyond you. Acts of blessing that you display upon others. That's what builds upon this foundation. And that's what gives the heavenly reward. What you lose out by having everything burn up is you've lost out on all heavenly reward. Salvation, there is the the, the preserving grace. This is totally up to God because if it wasn't up to God, all of us would be in big trouble. None of us could walk rightly. The preserving grace is totally up to God. That is what God takes care of. We must make a choice to build upon this the right way. Jesus has done this. And remember, shall receive eternal life. They shall. The eternal life is set. These, this sort of teaching is written as with an iron pen in the Bible. God takes care of it. There is this, this total depravity. We're totally depraved. There's this unconditional election. God has called a people. What happens is there's something called, called hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism is this extreme that says don't even bother preaching the gospel because the elect are going to come and you should only preach the gospel to people who are already feeling as if they are sinners and they need some sort of coming and then you preach to them. No, we preach to everybody. We preach to everybody over and over again. We give the word to everyone. Everyone who, who you have opportunity to, for, you can preach the gospel to them. The elect will come in. They will come in. And you will see God will lead many of the elect right to your door if you long to see people saved. He will lead them right there. And you will see people will be saved. God does this. Just like he chose Isaac. Before Isaac was even conceived, he made the choice. Twins in the womb. He chose one and not the other. How much more explicit could he be? If this doesn't match up with your theology, I'm just reading the Word of God. This gives you a problem? Then go back to these verses, read them, meditate on them, and see what God gives you. See what He gives you. How would you interpret this? There is human responsibility on how we build upon this. But it's all God. God is the one who saves us. God is the one who preserves us. This is all in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you have called believers and you will preserve them. But Father, I pray for these young people that they would learn to build upon that foundation and they would build upon this foundation with precious stones, with gold and silver. Father, I pray that they would do that. Lord, do that, that they may build up for themselves a heavenly reward. Father, I pray that none here would experience this, where Jesus is ashamed of them, where they would be saved, 
but it's through fire. And Jesus would be ashamed of them. Father, I pray that you would protect them from that. And Lord, for those here who don't know you, I pray that this day they would say, Lord Jesus, forgive me because I am a sinner. Forgive me and come into my life. I believe Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and come into my life. Lord, these are your precious ones. Have mercy on them, I pray. Have mercy on them. May they walk closely to you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.